everybody. This is Rob Raggersey. And this is Vanessa Raggersey. Welcome to the Fundamorphosis Podcast. We are glad that you are here with us today. We have a very big podcast episode ahead. We are welcoming author, speaker, networker... Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren is our guest today. We are pretty excited about that. Brian has been um, a really big part of our own Fundamorphosis big part of our own story, and so we are thrilled the chance to talk to him about his own own fundamorphosis, his own theological development, and his newest book, and all sorts of other things. So stick around. It's going to be a, a great conversation. We're excited about that. We also want to spend a little bit of time as we get started uh, talking about some of the things that are on our minds. Our opening segment each time that we get together is uh, a chance for Vanessa and I just to kind of talk about what we want to talk about, and uh, then we will answer your questions after our interview with Brian McLaren. As always, you can get in touch with us on the Fundamorphosis Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash fundamorphosis. You can email us your comments or questions at fundamorphosis at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at fundamorphosis, and uh, we would love to have you be a part of the conversation. And so you can join us that way. As we get started with our uh, kind of our opening segment and our discussion, uh, today is a big day not just because we are talking to Brian McLaren in a few minutes. It is a big day because we got a pope. Well, we <laughs> we in the sense that the world got a the pope. World yeah, got a I pope. mean we are. Yes. Well, this is once again one of those times on the Fundamorphosis podcast where we will talk about things that we have no real actual knowledge of, <laughs> but we will talk about it like we do. So Pope Francis the first. Uh huh. Uh huh. I watched it on the news while I was painting the woodwork in our living room, and I was really interested by the commentators talking about the kind of person that he was. And then when he spoke, I was very struck by how um, kind of casual and um, humble he was. He was he was really kind of endearing. Yeah, he, he really needs to learn how to wave. <laughs> I mean, he was just standing there, like, barely moving his hand. I, <laughs> I don't think he's used to doing a lot of waving. Could be. I mean, it was. It's really an interesting thing. I remember eight years ago when Pope Benedict um, became the Pope. You know, we watched that on TV, and, and this time I was watching on a, a feed on the internet, um, and it was a lot of build up and excitement. And uh, so it's a pretty historic thing. First Pope from the Americas, which is a significant thing. Um, first uh, Latin American Pope, which mm-hmm. is you know fantastic. I think. Forty percent of the the world's Catholics are in uh, in Latin countries, and so that's a that's an exciting thing. Uh, the first Jesuit pope, which don't know you know a, a whole lot about um, you know different Catholic uh, stripes, but um, that's been an exciting thing. I have a, we have a good friend Adam who uh, has a Jesuit background, and so he is quite excited about oh, uh, about. I'll- Pope Francis. We should have called Adam and asked him. Well, Adam and I were thoughts. Oh, we were chatting about chatting. it on, oh. on on Google. Yes, yeah, so. I was painting. So. Yeah, he actually he's Adam said that he's pretty sure that the that the the church will be perfect within three weeks. Oh. <laughs> and I told him I'd take the over on that. If I were betting. 
I would take the over. Um, yeah, so um, Pope Francis seems to be a real interesting guy, someone who has, um, at least from the news reports, the initial reports, have not used his power and influence for personal gain, but instead has been an advocate for the poor and modeled that. So that's mm-hmm. it's an exciting thing. Yeah, it was, um, it was very nice to hear him address the crowd as brothers and sisters. Mm. Um, that was that was um, that was noticed by the commentators, and also they they talked about the fact that um, he is concerned about social justice. He's concerned about the poor. Um, I found that really interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I, people need to temper their expectations. I mean, it's not like you know the church is going to be pro contraception anytime soon. No, it's not going to be pro uh, uh, gay rights or pro gay marriage anytime soon. Um, you no, know. but some attention to the poor is not, that's never a bad thing. Absolutely. So, so welcome, Pope Francis. We are, uh, we're, we're, we're glad that, that he's there. Yeah. So, Rob, you have been blogging on a particular theme lately. You have dubbed it Evangelism Week on your blog. That's true. Um, RobRyerC.com. You can also get there at thegrenzian.com. Last week was Evangelism Week. Started off real strong and ended with a little bit of a whimper. Uh, there's, in fact, uh, hopefully by the end of this week, I'll have uh, – there's two more blog posts that I intend to, um, uh, to to use to conclude Evangelism Week. Had one of my readers, Kevin, kind of call me out and be like, wait a minute, this didn't feel like it ended, and that's because it didn't. <laughs> um, and so there's two more – yeah, I, we did a lot of deconstructing on, like – this is evangelism. This is you know sharing the gospel, and uh, and so we need to do some some construction uh, and sharing some uh, thoughts on if evangelism is not that, then what is it? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think you know people that are that are careful readers probably have some hints of the direction that I'm going, given my review of Brian's book, um, his newest book, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road. Um, I think his his thinking has greatly influenced mine in this area. Um, also talked about um, a, a, a little Irish theologian named Paul Hewson. I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, but how he has shaped the way I think about being a Christian on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he's also known as Bono. Oh, that's right, Bono. Mm-hmm. Yes, lead singer of U two. I mean, tremendously self important in a lot of ways, and yet um, has really helped me and I think a lot of other Christians see themselves as global citizens. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a little preview of where we're headed uh, in the next couple of days, if I can get these blog posts done and posted. Uh, we have always defined evangelism as sharing the gospel, sharing the story of the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, so that people can believe in that and thereby escape hell and gain entrance into heaven. Um, And so we have sought, our evangelistic methods have grown out of our definition of the gospel to be about telling people this story and figuring out ways to urge them to accept it. Um, A little sneak peek also at our interview with Brian. I'm not sure that that's the best definition of the gospel we can use. In fact, um, you know, Jesus, when he defined the gospel, when he defined the good news, it was that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. 
Yeah, I've been finding it really interesting lately. I started thinking about that whole idea of even the gospel. Um, and we we throw it around so easily, and yet we don't have a very clear or consistent definition of what it is. I found that kind of interesting. Yeah. If we take the red letter approach and say that, that you know, Jesus' is de- definition of the gospel it should, ought to be ours— and it's therefore that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus goes on to talk about what that means for the marginalized and the oppressed and the needy and the poor. Um, how does that affect what we do as evangelism, mm-hmm. what we think of, of as evangelism? Mm-hmm. Maybe evangelism is when we, when we seek to bring about the kingdom of heaven, when we seek to grasp the kingdom of, of the kingdom of heaven and, and bring it about in this world. Maybe evangelism is when we feed the poor hmm. and uh, you know, seek justice for the oppressed. That is, and you're making a face at me like I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm now espousing the social gospel. Well, I don't know. No, I'm not sure if that's it. I was actually thinking about a conversation I had with my really good friend Kathy, and we had coffee um, last last week, and we were talking about evangelism, and we were talking about how how guilty we have felt over the years. And I mean, Kathy is the kind of person who, I mean, people that know her, they they generally agree that like sh- she's one of the best people on earth. She's the greatest person on the planet. Well, I mean, besides Pope Francis, I mean, she's the greatest she, person on the planet. She's pretty fantastic. Pope Kathy the first. <laughs> but I mean, she was telling me about the fact that she. Um, just couldn't bear the thought because she cares so much about people. She could not bear the thought of trying to shove them into this um, kind of box and 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 shove the gospel down their throat. She it just felt so unkind to her, and so she doesn't do it. But then she feels guilty because she's not sure. Because she's been told all her life that she's supposed, she's to, supposed be to be doing this stuff. Yeah, and I'm also I'm also really really curious about um, if it's um, if if our idea of evangelism because I I like to think about things through the lens of history and so I'm curious about this idea of evangelism that we have if it's a product of the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. that maybe they didn't think about it like that before in the church. Um, but you know, the eighties and nineties, everything was fast. Everything was quick, quick, quick. And, you know, fast food and, and fast converts. And so like, you know, go door to door, give them the, 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 uh, what is it? Evangelism explosion. Use the outline. The two diagnostic questions. Yes. The four spiritual laws. Give them a track. Make can it happen. The, the two I, diagnostic questions. Abs- uh, I can probably guess one. I can't remember. We paid money for that class and I, I have no idea. If you were to die today and you're standing before God, why, why should he, should he let, let you, you into heaven? Dead? Yeah. I don't remember the other one. Me neither. Money well spent Eesh. in our evangelism class in college Eesh. right there. Let's, let's not talk about that anymore because then I'll have to tell you the story about having to fulfill my 15 hours of evangelism practice, mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. apparently, um, going to a rescue mission in the city of Albany, New York. And did you say Albany, New I York? I did, and I, I like, I'm all <laughs> weirded out by it. Albany, New York. Albany, New York. I'm sorry. Okay, so I'm in Albany. Like you were in Albundy, New York? <laughs> I'm in Al- Albany. <laughs> Albany, New York. Okay. <laughs> hey, don't, don't make, I hate 
Go ahead. While you we're were at in, it. You were in Albany, New York. <laughs> we'll throw in Louisville and Lancaster. Yeah. You were in Albany, New York. I was in Albany, New York. I, we went to a rescue mission for the express purpose of fulfilling these hours. And I, you know, got hit on by more guys than I care to even admit. You are so wearing those jeans. <laughs> Let's not go there. It was bad. It was terrible. And I mean, it was awful to put us girls in that position well, just sec- to fulfill this this requirement sex sells even when it comes to the gospel it was awful yeah it was terrible yeah so i think if we i i think our methods flow out of our definition of the gospel and if there's but our methods also indicate if there's if there's something wrong with our definition uh Mm -hmm. you know you can you can by your fruit you can judge something and so if the fruit of our definition of the gospel is this guilt producing um you know, sales approach to evangelism, maybe there, maybe we need to rethink what we believe the gospel to be. Yeah. Maybe we feel icky about it because it's icky, not because we don't love Jesus. Right. And so hopefully I'm going to put more of these thoughts into uh, a more cohesive set and, uh, and get them up on my blog. That would be good. I would read that. Awesome. So evangelism week continues and, uh, and hopefully it'll be uh, it'll be something that we can we can continue that conversation. Love to have you chime in and be a part of the conversation too on on the Facebook page or on my blog. Uh, I guess one other big thing we Rob Bell's new book is out this week. Yeah, Are you yeah. Excited about that? Um, sure. I get. I'm yeah. We. I mean, anybody who reads Rob Bell's books has already been skewered. So you know, you, we've kind of taken that why in the road already so it's not a big surprise that we would be curious to be reading this book and some people will what never talking, touch it with tongs what we're talking about when we talk about god yeah is the title um kind of a, a departure from his shorter titles like velvet elvis and love wins and, and sex god sex god and a much more wordy title though as i've um i was gonna say as i thumbed through the book which isn't exactly accurate because i have it on my ipad so as I've I've swiped through the book a little bit, it is very much in the style of Velvet Elvis that follows his uh, his speaking patterns. Looking forward to it. Um, Me too. And doesn't seem to have gotten nearly the same kind of controversial pre-publicity that Love Wins got. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that'll be okay. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. I'll read it. And maybe we could try to convince him to come on the podcast sometime. Hey, if all of you that are listening, you need to tweet at Rob Bell that he needs to come on the Fundamorphosis podcast. Everybody tweet at him and uh, and let him know that it's at Real Rob Bell. Let him know that he needs to come on the Fundamorphosis podcast. We, we've never asked him to come on, but we should start a grassroots campaign to get Rob Bell Woo-hoo! on our podcast. So you can do that, and he could talk about his book, and that would make our day. So... Cool. Let's talk to Brian McLaren. Yeah, sounds good. (laughs) 
All right. Our, uh, our guest tonight is Brian McLaren. He is uh, author of a number of books, books that have been for Vanessa and I uh, pretty significant in our, our own theological development. And so we are excited to have the chance to, to talk to him. His most recent book is Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? Uh, a book about what it means to be a Christian in a multi-faith world. And we're going to talk to Brian about that as well as talk to him about his own theological development and uh, the fundamorphosis he's uh, undergone in his life. And so, Brian, welcome. We're so happy to have you on the podcast with us. I'm really glad to be with you guys. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Well, Brian, um, you know that, that this podcast is all about um, giving people uh, the opportunity to think about their own theological development, how they've changed and grown in their faith and in their beliefs. And, uh, and one of the ways that we do that is by talking to people who uh, have gone through a fundamorphosis of their own. And because uh, we think that when you, when you hear the story of someone else's story, it's easy to, uh, to find yourself in that and to, uh, to find some encouragement and some hope in the midst of that. You, you are someone who has gone through a rather public um, Fundamorphosis and documented it through uh, your writings, a new kind of Christian, and, and other books. Um, tell us a bit about kind of your own church background, what what you grew up in, and uh, and, and and to kind of set the stage for how you've changed and, and grown. Sure. Well, I, I grew up in a very loving uh, Christian family. Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, we were fundamentalists. I, I remember hearing that term for the first time maybe in my early teens. Uh, all I knew is that we were Christians who believed the Bible and stood on the Bible and uh, were founded on the Bible. and We considered ourselves to be the truly New Testament form of Christianity. It was a little group called the Plymouth Brethren, uh, or Christian Brethren, they're sometimes called. They're, they're the ones who gave the world dispensationalism. And, uh, and really a lot of uh, a lot of ideas that are somewhat widespread today about the priesthood of all believers. Uh, and uh, although, you know, there's a, there's a lot about my background that I, I suppose, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to impose on other people. Uh, there's a lot about it I'm, I'm very grateful for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you, you didn't stay, obviously, Plymouth Brethren. Um, and by the way, thank you for dispensationalism, by the way. Um, I'm sure I'm sure Tim LaHaye and is just thrilled. Uh, it's it, been, it has been a highly profitable uh, theology for some people, but oh my goodness, the damage it's caused to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, damage, I'd say a lot of personal and human damage too, but that's another story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, Vanessa and I both grew up dispensationalists, and so we, we fully recognize the, uh, you know, what's involved with that. Uh, so you didn't stay Plymouth Brethren. Uh, what, you know, what, what, what came next in your, in your development? Well, um, I, I remember being a teenager, I'm thinking just maybe, you know, like 13, 13 years old. And I was a science, uh, nerd, you know, I was really interested in science. So, uh, and I remember learning about, geology and volcanoes and uh, that sort of thing, and, and then learning about evolution. And uh, to me, evolution was intriguing and fascinating, and because I was so interested in animals and plants and, and so on, I, you know, I, I, I felt 
sitting in uh, my Sunday school class uh, on a Sunday morning, and the teacher saying something to me that we can either believe in God or evolution. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, okay, I'm, you know, I'm 14 years old. I'll be out of here in four years. <laughs> and I remember thinking, uh, I, I just can't make that kind of a choice. And, you know, it, it wasn't even that I was thinking of retreating. It was just a, a, a religious environment that, that seemed to be so sure of itself and so quickly dismissing other things. I just knew that wasn't going to work for me. Um, and then uh, a couple of years later, I, I was... Uh, exposed to the genius people. And in that context, I had a very powerful uh, conversion experience, a very powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. And what that ended up doing is putting my feet firmly on the path of following Christ. But at the same time, I still had a whole lot of questions about the fundamentalism that I had inherited. And, and in some ways, I just let this things coexist uh, for a long time. Even uh, I went out to graduate school, and, and you know, one of the things about being literature is uh, you, you learn how to deal with text and how to interpret text. And, you know, my, my literary studies certainly told me that uh, there were a lot of other ways to interpret the Bible. Uh, but one of the great things that also happens to English majors is maybe C.S. Lewis. And one of the gifts to me from C.S. Lewis was that. Uh, he understood, and the way he said it is there are grown-up ways of reading the Bible and childish ways of reading the Bible. In fact, I think like you said, uh, if you don't know how to read like a grown-up, you know, you should leave reading the Bible to grown-ups. And uh, so, you know, that I think gave me hope that there'd be some other ways to read the Bible and to hold my faith. Uh, although I'd have to say it was still many years before I actually went through that kind of sifting process for myself. Yeah, is uh, was there for you a like a a, a defining moment, a tipping point, a, a something that made you say, you know what, I have got to figure out a a a, a way to be a different kind of Christian than I have been. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you uh, maybe if, if I share maybe three of those kind of tipping point moments. Yeah. Um, the, the first one came when I was in graduate school, and. Uh, in the 19, in late 1920s, when I was in graduate school, that's when what we now call postmodern philosophy really first entered the American Academy. It came came to the U.S. through uh, English departments in literary criticism. And, hmm. and I kept hearing my professors talk about this thing called the new criticism. Hmm. And I heard it was associated with terms like post-structuralism. And, and I had no idea what it meant. And I was in my, uh, I think it was called Literary Criticism, uh, Introduction to Literary Criticism, English 601. <laughs> and uh, we, we had read a text by someone named Stanley Fish uh, called Self-Consuming Artifacts. And as I was and we were discussing the text, uh, I, that day I felt that I began to guess what they meant by the new criticism and postmodern and as soon as I got it, I remember thinking, oh boy, the Christian faith is in a whole lot of trouble. Hmm. I, hope this, I hope this way of thinking never catches on. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I, I put it on the back burner. And I, I should say, my kind of Christian theological hero at that point was, uh, was Francis Schaeffer. And, and what was so clear to me is that what the new criticism 
was critiquing was exactly the kind of intelligent uh, rationale for Christian faith that Bunchy Schaefer was advocating. And uh, so, you know, when somebody kind of knocks down your very best uh, fighter, you know, you, you know, you're in trouble. I managed to put that on the back burner, and it was really over 10 years later when I was, I'd become a pastor, and it's around 1990 or so. And I remember thinking, oh man, that way of thinking I encountered in graduate school, that is down on the street now. Because the people who were coming to my church who were spiritual seekers, it was clear that they were thinking in this different way. They were asking this different kind of question. So that was the second turning point. Uh, that, that was really, uh, really critical for me. And uh, I think a, a third tipping point came when, uh, right around that same time, when a guy who had started coming to my church uh, came to see me and told me he had gone from being an atheist to a theist uh, at, at our church, but he still had some really serious questions. And, he ended up asking me a question. He didn't know this is what he was asking, but he asked me a question about atonement theory. And I remember thinking, I not only do not have a good answer for his question, I have never even asked this question before. And um, I remember thinking, oh man, I've really got to grapple with this now. And what that opened up was, uh, uh, you know, a necessity. Uh, as a pastor, for my own self, as well as to help the people who were coming to me, I had to have the courage to go back and open up some things and ask some questions I'd never asked before. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Those those things of the those areas of, of dealing seriously with the culture in which we live, read, how we read the Bible, how we understand the death of, of Jesus. I mean, those really are. I mean, tremendously critical components to the. Uh, the, the theological journeys that, that people are on. I mean, that has absolutely been our, our case and, and, and the case of many people that we've known. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when you, when you acquire the faith in a fundamentalist context, and, and you know, I, I don't think there's much of a distinction in this regard between fundamentalism and evangelicalism. In fact, I, I remember... One of my uh, friends, a son of a very well-known Pentecostal preacher, said to me once, just remember, Brian, f- uh, Pentecostals are just fundamentalists with different practices. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, from charismatic, Pentecostal, evangelical, and fundamentalist, what's similar is they all have a very tightly wound package. Mm-hmm. And it centers on... A, a, a very rigid way of reading and using the Bible, a very combative understanding of, of, uh, the, of the culture in which we live, a kind of an us-them dualistic mindset, and uh, a very unconsciously uh, a constricted view of salvation and what Jesus came to do that uh, all centers around you know, a theory of atonement called you know, substitutionary atonement. And uh, so when, when that package, when you shake any little part of that package, it feels like the whole thing is over. Mm-hmm. Like Christianity has nothing more to, to offer, really nothing of value to offer outside of biblical inerrancy, substitutionary atonement, and, uh, you know, I don't know what else, but it's a, it's a short list. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And, you know, what, what our experience has been is that the fundamentalism that we, that we grew up with uh, was, was so built on an attitude of, of certitude and certainty that this yeah. is the way it is. And, and, yeah. and so if, I mean, if that's the case, uh, the, the approach of fundamentalists that is, it, and, and as you say, evangelicals, that is so often kind of mean-spirited and dogmatic, I mean, it's the, it's the logical conclusion of a, of a belief system that's built on certitude. Uh, you know, it, it's almost like, you know, the folks at Westboro Baptist, at least they're being consistent. You know, it, it is, you know, as yeah. horrible as that is, as they can be, uh, at least there's a consistency there that, um, you know, that they are just living out the logical extension of that kind of certitude, knowing for certain the eternal destinies of people. So it's a difficult thing. And, and there's a lot of different things that, that can shake people from that kind of certitude, certitude life, life experiences, questions that they encounter that they can't shake, all sorts of different things. Uh, my friend Richard Rohr often says that the two things most often shake us out of our small self, as he calls it. Uh, he, he talks about great love and great pain. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and sometimes, of course, great love brings great pain, and those two really gang up on you and tell you uh, it's time for, for some rethinking. Yeah, that's that's great. Now, you have been, um, your own theological development has been uh, pretty public. You've chronicled it in your books, and you have taken a lot of heat uh, for what you have, what you now espouse, and and the direction that you hope the church will go in. Um, and you've had a lot of critics. Uh, a lot of that venom has been been sent your way. One of the things that has been so impressive for us, uh, for Vanessa and I, is is how you have handled that with such grace. Um, and, and so, you know, talk about, I mean, can, how do you, how does someone, you know, in the midst of changing their beliefs and they get separated from, like Vanessa and I were, they get shunned, they get, you know, terrible things said about them and, and to them. I mean, how do you, how do you handle that with, with grace and kindness and compassion? How do you not, you know, fly off the handle and, 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 and fight back? I have a, a friend who's a singer-songwriter named Terry Newcomer. She probably has the best advice. The title of one of her songs is Don't Get Sent. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the fact is a lot of us often we something said or written about us and we write a fiery email. And one of the best things we can do is maybe we need to write it to get that process to hear what's really rising up in us. But it's usually not a good idea to hit send. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, a couple of things I would say. First is, uh, you know, I I don't think I would have had the courage to go on the journey I've been on uh, and to do it so publicly. Uh, I don't think I would have had the courage to do it if I knew how nasty and bad some of the costs would be. Huh. Um, uh, so, for example, you know, I, I stepped into some of these waters, uh, for example, dealing with how we... How, we as Christians understand and treat uh, homosexual people. I, you know, ventured into that territory, not knowing that uh, one of my sons was going to come out uh, publicly as gay. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't know he was gay, uh-huh. and I, uh, you know, and then of course, on top of it being sort of a theoretical issue, suddenly it's an issue that affects 
uh, one of your beloved children. And it just so happens that of my four children, um, that son is a cancer survivor. And, you know, we've been through so much with it. And then it, it's bad enough when your own name gets, uh, you know, uh, taken through the mud, but then the people you love are hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, especially a kid, it's just heartbreaking. But uh, it's not just the kid. There's, I, I imagine the two of you know this too. When a husband gets taken down, sometimes the wife, you know, gets brought with him, or, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think I would have had the courage to do what I've done if, if I'd known how tough it was going to be. But I'll also very quickly say that all of the criticism has been. And, an amazing gift. I don't mean to say I've enjoyed it at all, but it really has been a gift in so many ways. One of them being, well, I remember it hitting me a couple of years ago like this, that there's a big difference between wanting to be right and wanting to be considered right. <laughs> uh, and, and I realized that an awful lot of people really don't care that much about the truth. They say they care about the truth, but what they really mean is they care about our version of the truth. Um, and they care about having other people think of them as people who uphold our version of the truth. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, so when you get criticized, you really get the chance to say, do I really care about telling the truth, or do I just want to be seen as a member of our club? Uh, so there are many gifts that have come along with it. But one other thing I'll add, you asked the how question, how do you cope with it? One of my mentors gave me this beautiful poem, if anybody uh, wants to read it. it it's a, kind of a poem and a prayer. Uh, it's, I, I put it on my website. If you, uh, if you looked up a prayer for enemies, it will come up on my website, which is brianmcclaren.net. But uh, right before I went through a really intense period of, uh, of criticism, uh, this mentor gave me this, uh, this prayer. It was written by a Serbian Orthodox uh, bishop. And um, uh, the prayer, I I don't have it completely memorized, but the prayer goes like this. Bless my enemies, O Lord, even I bless them and do not curse them. And then it goes to all of the ways that having enemies has taught me things, has deepened uh, things about me. And I'll just give you one of my favorite lines from the prayer. Uh, It's just as an just as a hunted animal finds safer shelter than an unhunted animal, so I, pursued by my enemies, have found safer shelter in the shadow of your wings. Mm-hmm. Bless my enemies, O Lord, even I bless them to be my Christian. And there's some sense that you when know, you know that if you say this or that, people are gonna, you know, are going to have something to say about it. It, it really does make you go before God and. and Yeah, I'm. I'm. I found myself curious, as as Rob and I were talking um, before before we called you. Um, one of the things that we that we find so compelling about you is how kind you consistently are. And I and I I asked Rob this, and so I'm asking you: Is it your personality to be that gentle with people, or is this um, is this something you've learned as you know as you got Push to the front of yeah. leading this movement. Like, is it something that you just had to learn, or, or yeah. is it is it that is that just? I mean, are you wired that way? 
Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not an easy question to answer, Vanessa. Um, I, in one of my childhood, vivid childhood memories was being on a, a playground. I was probably in sixth grade or so, you know, and I was on the playground, and I, I, I made some smart aleck comment to this guy. And he was a bigger, tougher guy than me. And he walked over and he held his fist up in my face and he looked like he was going to punch me. And then he decided not to punch me and he just said, boy, your mouth is going to get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that he didn't punch me really made me pay attention to <laughs> And, um, and I, I think my problem is I've got a sharp tongue, you know, and, and I... You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how much I hold back. <laughs> you know? uh, so it, it, but I don't think by nature I'm a fighter, and there's no virtue in it. It's just that's more my temperament. But if I were a fighter, I really have a sharp tongue, and I, I'm pretty good with a pen sometimes, but I think I, I probably could uh, take some people down. In fact, like, the first really vicious review of any of my books was a really vicious review of any kind of Christian. And it was in a very well-known publication. Uh, or I shouldn't say well-known, but it's respected among a lot of people. Uh-huh. Called Books and Culture. Uh-huh. And I was invited to write a response to this review. And uh, I worked for hours. I bet I worked over, you know, three or four days. I probably worked 12 or more hours on my response. And it was a finely crafted piece of passive-aggressive attack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> and it was really, it, it was probably a, a, a masterpiece in the, in, in the genre of, you know, religious viciousness um, <laughs> that's all heavily veiled in a veneer of uh, piety. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I remember when I wrote that, I was about ready to send it in. I just thought, is this the life I want? I want to spend the rest of my life defending myself like this. And, huh. uh, I, I just had this feeling in my heart that I, that's not the life I wanted. I didn't want to be in a life of attack and defense and counterattack and so on. And so I just threw that out and started over again. And, um, and I feel like that was one of those defining moments for me where I just decided, you know, I, I think some people are fighters and maybe that's part of their calling. I don't, I don't know. Uh-huh. Although I would sure hope they would do it in a Christ-like way. But I, I don't think we're all called to do exactly the same thing. But I, I, anyhow, that was a point where I, I'm very glad I, I took the, the course I did. And, and since then, I, I, I've had a policy uh, that I would never attack anybody by name. And, and um, you know, I don't know that I've failed in that policy, but and, and, and that I would try not to defend myself. I, I wouldn't hesitate to try to clarify or, or state my own case when I felt that other people misstated it, but I wouldn't attack them. And I, I, any time I've ever attacked anybody, I regret it. And any time I've been kind to somebody, I, I don't regret it. So yeah. that's certainly wrong. Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, what we've seen is that so many people trade one fundamentalism for another. And, uh, uh, and and they they just kind of transfer that same kind of venom and mean spiritedness and certainty to their newest cause, and uh, and you have been for us a a wonderful example of of not doing that. And it, it really you know it, it, a generous orthodoxy was a, a book that was so formative for us to be yeah, coming out of 
a, fun, a, a fundamentalist denomination that was all about... An ungenerous it, Yes, an, un, an ungenerous word. <laughs> an, I'm not even sure orthodoxy is the right <laughs> word to use there either. But, yeah, it was so much, you know, we're right and everybody else is wrong. And, you know, we... And, you know, we're on the first bus to heaven and, you know, it's uh, – and to gain an appreciation for, you know, all of the, the richness of the diversity of the church, you know, is, is a really wonderful thing. And that's been really formative for us. I have this sense that in, in, a, in a real similar way that your newest book is, is like that too um, – Giving, you know, casting a vision for how to be a Christian in a multi-faith world, where you know we are interacting in our in our culture and as global citizens with people who have very different religious beliefs than than we have, have very different confessions of faith, and and how to be generous and kind in the midst of that. Um, let's talk a little bit about about your your newest book. Um, you have been through a, a you know a, a bit of a transition too in, in how you relate and how you think about people from other faiths and and, and that's a, a you know a bit about what you write about in in why did Jesus and and everybody else cross the road uh, you know tell us a bit about about what that book is about and and kind of the, sure. the genesis of why you wanted to, to, to write it sure well I, I think like everybody uh, in the United States since September 11, 2001, we've been aware that uh, that people of different religions are either going to figure out how to get along or they're going to blow each other up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I don't know how much we think about the latter. Uh, but, you know, as a Christian, you think if, if Christians are going to get into this pitch battle with Muslims, and if it weren't Muslims, maybe it would be Hindus, and if it weren't Hindus, maybe we'd be atheists. But um, lately, you know, the, the enemy since 2001 for a whole lot of Christians has been Islam. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, think about the two options. If, if there is this kind of a pitch battle with Islam, if Christianity wins, what does that mean? Does it mean they win by dropping nuclear bombs and killing and, and cowing Muslims around the world into submission? Is that a victory for Christianity? To me, that is the greatest defeat of Christianity. By winning, Christianity loses its soul. Um, And the other option is that, uh, you know, Muslims, uh, if Christians and Muslims fought and Muslims won, then, you know, that's a defeat. But my goodness, that might be a better defeat (laughs) Mm -hmm. for for the sake of Christianity than the one, than the former. Um, So my, uh, you know, my sense has been, uh, as a Christian, uh, Jesus said, uh, don't try to take a splinter out of your brother's eye when you have a, a, a you know, telephone full of drones. So, so what that you want to ask is what are the causes of interreligious hostility that I can see inside the Christian religion? Um, that I can see inside my own heart. And so that was really the gen- uh, big part of the genesis of the book. Um, I should also say, another part of the genesis of the book is that in my travels all around the world, from Argentina to Sweden to Cambodia uh, to uh, uh, the United States, I hear people asking questions about uh, Christian claims of exclusivity and supremacy and that sort of thing. So I knew I needed to deal with the subject. 
Yeah. The, the starting point of the book is that we Christians know how to do two things very well. First, we know how to have a strong Christian identity that is hostile toward other religions. <laughs> when I say hostile, meaning we think the world would be better off if they just didn't exist and everybody would join us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we might not think of that as hostile, but imagine if a Muslim said, we think the world would be a better place if there were no Christians and everybody would join us, or mm-hmm. the atheists said that, but indeed. You know, we wouldn't take that as friendly, even though they might feel that's wonderful. <laughs> so um, we know how to have a strong Christian identity that's hostile to another religion. And then we have people on the other extreme who, who develop a, a weak Christian identity that's tolerant toward other religions. But there are huge problems with that approach, too. Uh, you can go into if you want. But when you look at those two obvious options, Maybe one being the more conservative and fundamentalist option, the other being the more liberal or, or mainline option. Um, uh, it, it just opens up this the need for, for a third alternative, at least to explore one, which would be, could we imagine a Christian identity that is both strong and benevolent, that mm-hmm. the more committed you are to Christ, the more committed you are to his way and his teaching, his message, the, the more you will love your Indian Muslim Buddhist atheist neighbor, the more you will seek to understand and respect them, the better neighbor you will be, the better friend you will be. Uh, is that possible? And that, that really was the, the thrust of the Yeah, it, it really a fantastic and, and challenging book. Um, I, I love just about every page. Love the, um, the, the repurposing and reimagining uh, what our what our theology could be, um, kind of thinking through theological beliefs that have been divisive in the past, and and reimagining them as um, the basis for finding um, this strong and benevolent Christian identity that you talk about. Uh, the you know I, I said in my review of, of your book on my blog, but you know the, the chapter on original sin alone is is worth the price of the whole book. Fantastic stuff. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah, uh, it, it, I, I wonder if one of the one of the criticisms that people might have, or one of the questions that people might have, is then if if this is um, if this is you know what you're you're shooting for this this benevolence this you know not having this hostility then what what does that do for evangelism you know what how like what then is evangelism. challenges that I think we have to overcome uh, if we're going to move from the kind of strong and hostile identity or weak and, to- and tolerant identity that, that we're already good at to a strong and benevolent identity. First, there's a historical challenge. Uh, second, a theological challenge or a doctrinal challenge. Third, a liturgical challenge. And then fourth, a missional challenge. And the evangelism question really comes in, in that word, under that word challenge. And, right. And you know, I, I don't think I can give a good answer to that without the, the groundwork of the uh, historical, doctrinal, and liturgical issues that I talk about in the book. But putting that aside for a minute, um, maybe I could say it like this. Uh, I, uh, you know, I really began following Christ, as I said, in, 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 for, on my own, in, as, as a, uh, a decision of my own, in the context of the Jesus movement in the early 70s. And, 
you know, back in the hippie days, uh, there, there was a huge amount of interest in Eastern religion. And a lot of my friends had uh, become Buddhist, some very serious and committed, you know, some, I think they didn't even know what that meant, but it just sounded cool. But, but my, my serious Buddhist friends, I remember having this sense that, I mean, it sounds crazy, but sometimes I felt, wow, they love the Buddha more than we Christians love Jesus. And here's the reason I would say that. Uh, even though we made different claims for Jesus, my Buddhist friends love to tell the stories of the Buddha. My Buddhist friends love to, uh, uh, to quote uh, things that were attributed to the Buddha. And they met, and they wanted to give me the insights that they had gained from, uh, from the teachings of the Buddha. They wanted to give this to me as a gift, whether or not I converted. Hmm. It was just so much a part of them that they wanted to share it. And I remember feeling that, oh, they just love the Buddha. Whereas I always felt that my job was to recruit people for my religion and uh, that, if anything, I was trying to knock down what they believed so that they would want what I believed. Whereas for them, it was just like, no, this is what we have is so wonderful, we want to share it. And in some ways, I, I realized that all these years later, I'd come around saying, actually, they, they really were teaching me something. I love Jesus. I, I think what Jesus had to say is unparalleled in the world. I think Jesus offers unique, splendid, and fantastic, and irreplaceable gifts. Uh, to me and to every person who ever lived. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean I go around with, you know, with a, a threat. It means I get to share the wonderful gifts that I've received through Christ with other people, and, and I can offer them with open hands. Uh, it's so interesting. I, I didn't include this quote in the book, but um, Gandhi is someone who actually said this. Gandhi said that he believed uh, that Jesus was not just a gift the Christian religion, which Jesus is a gift to the world. And if, if I really believe that, that God so loved the world that he gave the world to stuff, then, I, you know, I can just join God in giving the gift of Jesus to the world and trust the Spirit to work with him in that. So, yeah, that's a pretty great kind of evangelism. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that is fantastic. I like it. Yeah. Brian, we we always ask our guests uh, two questions at the end of our, our conversation with them, and, and we want to ask those to you as well. Um, the first one is this. Uh, we have a, a, a lot of listeners that are kind of in the midst of their own theological development. They've begun asking questions. They've begun wondering about things. They have... Um, you know, they might still be in their traditional church and scared... <laughs> scared to admit kind of what's going on and where they're at and what's happening in their, their minds and in their hearts. Um, and and we're trying to provide a a safe place for them to, to think about things and to, uh, to know that they're not alone. What, what advice would you give to someone who is in the midst of questioning the, 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 the traditional Christianity that they grew up with or they've always known, but they're, they're not quite, they haven't arrived anywhere yet, as if any of us arrived, but yeah. they haven't arrived yeah. anywhere yet. What, what advice would you give them? What would you say to them? Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot I want to say that I think I would always start with these two things. The first would be, uh, maybe I would say, fear not. <laughs> <laughs> in the Bible. But what I would mean by that is, there is a difference between doubting God and doubting your ideas about God. 
And there is a way in doubting your ideas about God that you can actually trust God more than you ever have before. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, you think about you think about a, a child who um, who confides something very deep to his mother or father, uh, and it's something that they were too ashamed to confide to anybody else. And um, you know, the act of confiding is the deepest act of trust we can ever have. So what we can do, I think, is learn to bring to God our deepest questions and doubts. You know, even to the level of, God, I'm not even sure you exist anymore. For God, I read this in the Bible, and it sounds horrible. Or God, uh, you know, that doctrine that I was always taught doesn't make sense. Or God, those people who said all those things in that, those sermons, I think they were just uh, trying to scare me into compliance. You know, you might not be, uh, you might not think there's any human being in the world you can trust with those kinds of statements. But to me, the deepest act of confidence in God is, is confiding in God about. So give yourself permission to doubt ideas and God and so on. But you can do that even, you know, you can do that in, in God's company and, and, and pouring your heart out to God and confiding in God. That's the thing I'd say. And then the second thing I'd say is, uh, somehow try to find a couple of friends who are safe. Yeah. And uh, and that's what I love about what you guys do in your podcast, with your book, and with your church, and with the other work that you're doing. Um, you know, for a lot of fundamentalists, uh, you know, like, like us, from our background, uh, if we were to tell some people what we our questions, what we thought, they would run to somebody else, and they'd run to somebody else, pretty soon they'd be called before the pastor or the elders or whatever, and and they would just use all kinds of fear and intimidation kind of case. But, you know, it'd just be almost like being in a cult sometimes. Um, that's why we just, we, we just need some friends who we can trust and we can think things through. And very often those people can be found... Uh, Yeah, fantastic. And I would just say, you know, in companion to that, I mean, finding, reading authors that can help. I mean, when I was, when I was in my own kind of dark night of the soul and, you know, I, that's when I cracked open a new kind of Christian and, and you became that first friend that then gave me the courage to talk to some others. And, and so there, there's authors out there that can help, you know, help you wrestle with these kinds of things. Um, one, one final question for you. Um, knowing that our, our theological journeys are unending, um, what are you, like, what, what are the questions you're wrestling with now? What are the things that, kind of what's next on your own theological horizon, so to speak? What's on your mind? Uh, maybe that, you, you know, you haven't gotten figured out yet, but, um, but is, is something that you're kind of thinking about and rolling around in your head right now? Sunday or a Wednesday or whatever, but bring people together once a week 
uh, for a year to try to help them get a healthy and fresh orientation to the faith. One that wouldn't put them in a box that they have to break out later, break out of later, but one that put them on a path that would work for them through their whole life. What would we want them to hear and talk about and uh, uh, sing and say and pray? Hmm. And so that, that's the question. You know, what would a healthy, open-ended introduction to the faith uh, look like? And so, and, and boy, it, it's it's. You know, it's a very simple and practical question, but having done all the thinking and weaving and rethinking I've done over the last uh, 15, 20 years, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm struggling with that now. That's not exactly now. Yeah. I would think that they, you'd probably want to have them sing Onward Christian Soldiers every week, wouldn't, wouldn't you? Hey, that would do it. Yeah. That would do it. Uh, think about uh, the foe and think about Jesus and Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, you you have been um, you know such an encouragement to us, and uh, and you know before we even had a chance to meet you, you kind of ruined our lives and saved them all at the same time. And uh, and and we so appreciate you, and and thank you so much for for being on the podcast with us today. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. How great is Brian McLaren? Love that guy. He, now I do. <laughs> I didn't used to. <laughs> Why didn't you used to? Well, he ruined my life. How did he ruin your life? Uh, well, you read that book, and we had a house, the equivalent of a white picket fence, and kids in a school, and a life that was sort of mapped out and predictable. It was a known quantity, and then you read that book. and That book being a new kind of Christian. Yes. And it changed everything. Yes. Would you go back? No. Okay. So So you don't want to punch Brian McLaren in the face? Not anymore. That's good. Not anymore. Well, it is question time. Yes, it is. We have a bunch of questions to to talk about tonight. Yes, we do. And our first question is from Aaron. Aaron writes, I started reading Genesis on Monday. Lots of stuff I never took note of before, but explain this. Why circumcision? (laughs) (laughs) Why did that become the sign of the covenant God made with Abraham? And how was it a sign? Did they go around checking? So many questions. Oh, my stars. Vanessa, why circumcision? Uh, I have no clear answers on this, but I can only guess that... um, You're making some kind of sacrifice, and... You would miss some of the other parts more. <laughs> so if you're going to cut something off, maybe. Foreskin is less valuable than, say, a pinky. 
Is that what you're... I'm... I... That's that's what I'm saying, I guess. Fantastic. I mean, Aaron just posed this question to us not long ago on the facebook.com slash fundamorphosis site uh, where everybody can jump in and be a part of the conversation. Maybe someone else has a better answer to Aaron's question. I have never really thought about it. I've never really thought about why circumcision. So I don't have a clear answer of why this. I mean, I'm sure there'll be some people that say, oh, there's health benefits and, and whatnot. And then there are people that say there aren't health benefits to circumcision. But as a as a religious sign, as the, the thing, like it's... Could it be... I'm, I'm just total speculation here off the top of my head. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, could it... I mean, so much of what... So much of what the Hebrew God does in the Old Testament, in, in the, the early chapters of, of, of Genesis and into Exodus, mm-hmm. is all about taking, I mean, God shows himself, God shows himself, ugh, God shows God's self to be a um, very distinct from the, the other gods that exist. And, and so I'm thinking in terms of like how the, the plagues in Exodus correspond to Egyptian gods. Could there be something about like the, the worship expression, the worship of, of Asherah with Asherah poles and phallic symbols and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that God is saying, you know what, all, you know, all of you, you know, humanity from the beginning of time has worshipped sex, uh, worshipped the penis. Uh, everything you do revolves around this. I'm going to show you that, you know, you can cut that off and still trust me. I'll still provide. Am I, am I way off base here? I, there's a big difference, don't you think, between cutting it all well, the yes, way off? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, <laughs> symbolically, <laughs> symbolically. I don't know. I, I imagine there is some, like, it was probably very culturally relevant in the day. I think there's something to that. Some of my favorite Bible stories are those where... Adults get... Circumcised. circumcised. And then get defeated in battle. <laughs> Not not long after. Now we have talked about creating a flannel graph series of of bible stories that there are no flannel graph, you know, images for. We might need to include circumcision flannel graph in in the uh I'm actually having a flashback from um I think it was 4th grade bible class and one of the girls in our class asking our single unmarried teacher what a foreskin was and that poor woman had to answer and she turned 14 shades of red and I think so did the kid who asked <laughs> just a pretty vivid memory that's great all right let's go on Aaron when you figure it out let us know yeah um, our next question is from Sunny Sunny says how does the Christian experience respond to those of us uh, who experience the divine as mother instead of father this isn't a whim, but a deep and unchangeable expression of the interior dialogue of my soul with God. This is a little bit more serious question. This is much more serious than a circumcision question. Yeah. Um, Though maybe related, maybe a, maybe the Divine Mother wouldn't ask us to cut our foreskins off. I'm not sure. Uh, Go ahead. Answer the question seriously. I, I won't make jokes. 
I can't promise I won't make jokes. Well, we have we were always taught in fundamentalism that God was not male or female, but then they went ahead and referred to God as him and he. And that's what I'm used to. It's what I'm familiar with, and that's kind of my default. That's how I express it. But you are much more careful. I work really hard at not using masculine pronouns for God. I I messed up just moments ago, but I work really hard at that. Um, I wrote an entire book without using a masculine pronoun for God. I, I'm, I think it's laziness on my part that I, that I don't, I think, I think it's, I think it's a completely valid way of, of experiencing God. Mm-hmm. And, and that might be upsetting to some people, but I, do we have any reason? I mean, I mean, I suppose they would say, you know, it was written down that way or that God inspired them to write it as yeah. a, as the masculine. Yeah. For me, it's not an either or it's a both. And that I would think that someone that uses exclusively masculine terminology to refer to, to God misses out mm-hmm. and people that use exclusively feminine terminology to refer to God miss out as well. Mm-hmm. The, the Bible has both yeah. uh, uses. There I mean, are much fewer uses of imagery of God as mother, but they're very rich images. They're, and they're present in, in the Christian oh, scriptures. Yeah. And yeah. so I think I, that's why like I like to use the imagery depending on the context of what we're talking about. Um, but in just in general conversation, I've worked really hard at disciplining myself not to use masculine pronouns for, for, for God, the father, for God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and especially for the spirit, um, you know, but to, you know, to leave that room for there to be a both and kind of thing rather than an either or. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it would take some getting used to. I would feel like I was in a different culture to have a conversation about God as she. Um, but not a, not in a bad way necessarily. That, that could be very, I mean, I know I can say with, with, with confidence and joy. I mean, one of the most worshipful experiences of my life was hearing my friend Candace sing uh, Sinead O'Connor's song, This Is To Mother You. Mm-hmm. And it was a song about God as yeah. mother. And it was it was stunning. Yeah, was- and that was a worship gathering that we did at Vintage a few years ago. It was a part of a series called God Is That You, where we looked at um, often ignored images of God that are in the scriptures, that God as a storm, not God in the storm, God as the storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, there's a, there's a Psalm that describes God as a drunken sailor, you know, this like a God who has drank so much that he, and we love to say, you know, Oh God never sleeps or slumbers except when God does. <laughs> um, this image. Yeah. In, yeah. And, uh, and then we we did one we did a, a worship gathering about uh, the God as our our mother yeah. and and it was a really wonderful experience. I would think it could also be extremely healing for people who have had horrible situations, horrible horrible experiences with an earthly yeah. father. Yeah. Yeah. I think so Sunny to answer your question, I think that 
there certainly is, though it's not nearly as common as we would hope, there is certainly Christian imagery that, that allows for you to think of God in feminine terms. The encouragement I would give you would be not, is to think about maybe not doing that exclusively, um, for fear of, you know, it is just as, as lopsided as, you know, fundamentalists can get with the masculine terms. I worry that people kind of, the pendulum swings the other direction that, that I don't know if you necessarily have to choose. Okay. Okay, so our next question is from Matthew. We have two questions from Matthew. And they'll, they're they going to be good ones because he's thinking hard. So go ahead. Um, Matthew's first question has to do with the idea of hero worship and kind of elevating people to um, uh, uh, cults of personality. And, it, and it's, it's a... <laughs> All of a sudden I'm feeling guilty about how much we like Brian McLaren. <laughs> All right, go ahead. <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna come in on Matthew's question mid question because he has a a long setup. But then he says, "Do you think that there might be concurrent innate desire, in accordance to the doctrine of sin, perhaps, to lift ourselves up and make idols of ourselves and or the people or things we identify with? Is there a place?" in the modern church for saints, that is, people that are basically idealized because they are supposedly superior examples of desirable virtues. Is there a place in the church and or modern Christianity for iconoclast or perhaps general iconoclastic tendency in most followers rather than just a few? People who, in accordance with the postmodern zeitgeist, zeitgeist coming from Matthew, deconstruct idols in the form of celebrities, heroes, and other idealized institutions and beliefs. What are your thoughts about hero worship in the church? Absolutely, we live in a culture that is obsessed with celebrities. Um, people are famous for being famous. I, I've noticed lately that um, you know we watch AFV, America's Funniest Videos, with our kids every Sunday night as part of our, our family routine. And I've noticed in, in his sign-off, Tom Bergeron now says, instead of just you know, get rich, he says, you know, get rich, get famous. Um, and there's something about being famous that is very alluring and addictive and something that is a big part of our culture. And Christianity is not uh, immune to that oh, at all. Not at all. I just read an article on, I think it was leadership or relevant. I can't remember which one that had to do with how do you know if you've gone too far in in your you know you're couching it in terms of I'd like a bigger I'd like a bigger platform so I can help more people or do you just want to be famous? Yeah, I think um, when it comes to idolizing people and and saints, um, I remember John Fisher in one of his books talking about how we have this, we often do that because we have this, or maybe it was Philip Yancey, I think it's John Fisher, but we often idolize in people in our minds, create these saints, lift up famous Christians in, in this way in our minds because we, we think we hope that somebody out there is actually doing it right. Hmm. That we see all of our own failings and our own faults and we think, okay, I can't do it, but Billy Graham can. Mm -hmm. I can't do it, but Rick Warren can. Mm -hmm. I can't do it, but Rob Bell can. I can't. And, and we, we want, we think that the truth of our faith is dependent on somebody actually living it out in its entirety and completely. 
and we elevate these people and create this um, this facade around them to prop up our faith. And what it ultimately is, it's a failure to to rest in grace. Yeah, it's a performance based belief system as opposed to something that's based on God's grace in our lives. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't. I think. I think it is worthwhile to to have people who you look up to that you honor you give honor you give you give your attention to in some sense because they are doing something well and um like i i think you know sometimes that can be a path to encouraging you or carrying you forward and 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 you being able to do more because you've seen somebody else doing it. Like I, you know, I'm the kind of person who really likes an example. So I think there's some benefit to that, but I, I think you have to keep in mind that even the the most remarkable people, in fact, I think some of the most remarkable people have the most weird flaws. Yeah. There's the thing that is for, for me anyways, the thing that is so compelling about a leader so compelling about an example is someone who is willing to be authentic and willing to be real about their flaws and their questions and their doubts and their, their journey. And that is far more compelling to me. I want to follow a person like that as opposed to, you know, the, you know, the slick television pastor who's got it all together. You know, that's not compelling to me at all. Fronding. 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 What is fronding? And Lamont wrote about that. Um, I, I, a quote that she was talking about she was talking about televangelists and that when when people that are irreligious or people that are, are non she calls them the nons when the nons think of christian they think of those slick televangelists fronding waving their palm branches from their stages and she like made up this word fronding and now it's just going to be part of my vocabulary there you go so yeah fronding is bad authenticity is good there you go all right, so Matthew's second question is, in some circles, faith is considered antithetical to reason. That is, to be faithful to a god or a, or a doctrine, one must shut down one's rational faculty. Have you ever found this to be true? Have you ever come across a doctrine or aspect of Christianity that defies what you think is reasonable? How do you, how do you reconcile the conflict? Do you think there is a middle ground between faith and reason, or... Can you only have one at the expense expense of the other? Is there a Christian belief that is utterly irrational? Yeah. The rapture. <laughs> the rapture is the most ridiculous thing. Now, now see, I was going to say the way we do evangelism. <laughs> well, there you go. That too. And those two might be connected somehow. I mean, I rem- like I remember like in college when I was a, you know, an unquestioning dispensationalist who believed in the the pre-tribulational pre-millennial rapture of the church i mean i was like i still thought this is ridiculous it's uh, like i mean that wasn't enough at the time to make me not believe it but and i'm not suggesting now that i don't believe it or maybe i am i'm not sure i'll let you decide but i mean it is a utterly irrational thing to think that in a split second, millions of people are going to disappear. Billions of people or a billion people are going to disappear. And all that's going to be left is like, you know, a, pile a, of clothes. a billion pile of clothes. 
all over the planet and cars careening out of control. Someone, you know, someone seeing that in case of rapture, this car will be un- unoccupied. Unmanned. In, unmanned. Of course, unmanned. Um, <laughs> you know, and, you know, someone thinking, woohoo, I got a free car, you know, because the rapture happened. I mean, it's it's an utterly ridiculous thing to believe. But. But. So, I, in general, with rationality and faith, I mean, I honestly, I mean, I mean, you heard Brian talk about um, having to come to grips with with science and and literary criticism, and and I think there's there is an approach to Christianity that is anti intellectual, but it's not the only approach to Christianity that's out there. Mm-hmm. There are other um, intellectually honest. Uh, approaches to Christianity that I think I would encourage people to to pursue and to think about. That's not to say, however, that you're going to be able to figure everything out. Uh, the approach to, to faith that we now embrace, the the approach to belief that we now embrace, has a a strong reverence for mystery yeah. and being able to say, "I don't know, yeah. I don't have it figured out." There's something really powerful about that too. And so we we pursue understand you know it was it was uh, was it Anselm Saint Anselm who said that 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 uh, um, theology is faith seeking understanding that uh, there's there's this journey that we're on where we're trying to understand where we're thinking where we're wondering where we're asking questions and seeking answers uh, but but it's it's our faith that's propelling us on that journey. And so I, I mean, I don't see, I don't see, and for me, faith is not antithetical to the human experience. It's a part of the human experience. So emotions aren't antithetical to faith. Our minds and our, you know, our thoughts are not antithetical to faith. Our actions, I mean, I, we take a very holistic approach to faith that, that, that a life that's oriented to God is going to incorporate all of those things and, and, and bring all of those things together. What we do, how we feel, what we think, our relationships, our health, all of those things come together in, in a life that's oriented towards God through Jesus. He, God asks us to love love him with our minds, with all our minds. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to think that, that that wrestling match is was worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's look at Lori's question. Lori has two questions for us. Lori and Matthew are overachievers this time around. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. That's true. They are. Um, if uh, So really now the challenge is for someone next time to ask three questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> they better be good questions. <laughs> Okay. That's true. Okay, so Lori says, um, in your desire for the church to be relevant, how do you respond to many Christians' belief that the church should be countercultural, thinking of, you know, Bonhoeffer and, and his approach to faith coming to mind? Um, relevant is one of those words that when I hear it in relationship to church, it makes me want to bang my head against the wall. <laughs> You keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I like. I'm not a big fan of the word relevant. Um, you know, so 
do we think that church needs to like okay so friends uh, let me back up i believe that church in its expression is bound to the culture that it's in uh-huh. so church polity worship styles dress language all of those things are reflections of of a faith that is being incarnated uh, there is an incarnational component to our faith that is basic and and needs to be kind of presuppositional and so it comes out in how church is expressed so i don't believe that i don't believe that any other church should look or act like our church does because our church is incarnated with this particular group of people in this particular time and space yep. uh, church like other other church gatherings are going to be by necessity incarnational in their own expression their own locale mm-hmm. their own culture and so i don't think like pitting often we have church pitted against culture i think it's a false dichotomy i think church is an expression of culture mm-hmm. And is necessarily so, and we kid ourselves if we think otherwise. Yep. It's the water we're swimming in. Exactly. Yep. So relevance is almost a uh, – it's almost like this pointless question because if a church is irrelevant because of its methods, I mean it's – like that's – if if a church is trying to preserve an old culture, it's trying to preserve like you know the, the old way of doing things just for the sake of preserving the old way of doing things – um, that's the Amish. Yeah. And it's, you know, there, there, I guess there are some, there's some benefits to that. It's, it, it's not an approach that resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Now, should the church also at the same time be countercultural? Absolutely. Without question. Yeah. Without question. That we need to... Church needs to be incarnational in its culture and yet to be prophetic in its culture, again, following the example of Jesus, being able to speak out against things like consumerism and and uh, and selfishness and, and narcissism and all of the things that are so prominent in our culture that to its detriment, the church needs to be a place that says, listen, that's like that's a, an approach that, um, you know, is going to lead to bad things. Mm-hmm. It needs to seek ways to heal the things that are broken. So race, um, your financial status, your gender, your politics. I mean, we need to go countercultural to the way that that is expressed outside of the walls of church. Yeah, and so I guess like to, to pit relevance and being countercultural against each other again, seems to me to be a false dichotomy. All right. So what's Lori's last question? Lori's last question is this. Could you talk about the things you're grateful for from your fundamentalist heritage? As an example, I'm super thankful for the people who insisted on Bible memorization and literacy for me. It it has been such a huge blessing. I love this question. Yeah, because we spent a lot of time ripping on fundamentalism. Um, and with good reason, and yet, and yet we could not be who we are today if we had not been who we once mm-hmm. were. I think I wrote about that in my book. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I have, um, I have nothing but warm, pleasant memories of my growing up years in church. Um, 
Except for the memories that are really lousy. <laughs> <laughs> no, and Tell a, us about the warm ones. That's what Lori wants to know. Yeah, I, I, you know, she touched on the, the Bible literacy and the um, memorization. I, I, you know, those are a big deal. Um, I don't know if those are, are, are those singular to fundamentalism, though. I mean... I don't know. But, I mean, they were a part of your fundamentalist upbringing. They definitely upbringing. were. They yeah. definitely were. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that are that are singular to my fundamentalist upbringing that I loved. Um, um, potlucks. <laughs> potlucks. There you go. That's right. I mean, that's something we found. I mean, we have had to teach Vintage Fellowship, our, our current church. We've had to teach Vintage how to do potlucks. <laughs> I mean, there's some things, I mean, our church is wonderful and amazing at some things. And then there's some things we are just horrible at. We cannot pass, like, the offer, we use offering buckets. We cannot pass the offering buckets. Um, With any kind of order whatsoever. It's just a free-for-all. Just buckets zigzagging around the room. We could not start on time to save our lives. No, we are. We've improved at potlucking, which is good, but we haven't always been good at it. no. Uh, you know, so, I mean, there are things like that that, you know, we just learned. You know, is there something about the camaraderie of your fundamentalist heritage, our fundamentalist heritage that that, that you think of? I mean, so often, you know, it, it's like anything else. Fundamentalist's greatest strength is also its greatest weaknesses. And it's that way for us mm-hmm. as people. Your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. It's the flip side of the, the same the same coin. So you have, you know, fundamentalism has this deep reverence for the Bible that, you know, can, can veer towards, uh, that can veer towards idolatry at times. It's, it's the flip side of the same thing. Mm-hmm. There's like the, the, the deep commitment to biblical inerrancy leads to this, in, in, you know, the flip side of that is that commitment to biblical literacy that we so that we so cherish, you know. There's so many difficult relationships that come about in fundamentalism that are based on fear and manipulation, and yet at the same time, like there's the opportunity for camaraderie with people. You know, fundamentalism has like that, like that close, like there you're part of a cl- a club that's uh, like a closed environment in us versus them kind of thing, but. In the midst of being the us, you develop these wonderful relationships. You can develop these wonderful mm-hmm. relationships. Uh, fundamentalism has, um, you know, their belief about the gospel and the, you know the the atonement and what Jesus did on the cross and what it means for us and what it means for the world that produces zeal and commitment that is that is laudable and good. And so, you know, it's I, I think it's one of those things that is. You know, the greatest strengths of fundamentalism are also the greatest weaknesses of fundamentalism. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that's, I mean, it's, it's such a hard question for me because I, um, I guess I no longer think of it as a place that really exists anymore. I feel like fundament, fundamentalism was a season and for some for people, you or for everyone? Because um, I know that pe- there are still people there, that, but yeah. I. But how long can it last? 
I mean, that's that's my question: is how long can it how how long can it last? Because look at the churches that we were in; they were already missing one generation, two generation. Their 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 kids are not going back. If they are, they're in really small numbers. So I don't I don't know how I. Mm-hmm. Just like everything, you know, we're, the church was fifty years behind. So maybe fifty years from now, it it won't be there. Yeah, it won't be like it what like it like it has been. Yeah, and just I just thought of another example of kind of that flip side thing. You know, fundamentalism has that like the legalistic approach to to you know how you live your life and what you do, and yet at the same time, that helps to produce discipline and. And self control in your life. It's, you know, the greatest, yeah, greatest, I, greatest, greatest strength, strength, greatest weakness. I often think back on, um, you know, maybe it was because I was a kid and people were making me do it, but I, I went through a, a time where I worried that I had no discipline. I used to be so much more disciplined and now I'm, now, then I, then I felt like I wasn't. But I think that's coming back. When you, when you're able to be disciplined under grace, Instead of expectation and legalism, then maybe it's a truer and better form. Yeah. So. Yep. Glad that Lori asked about uh, kind of our fundamentalist heritage because that's what my book is about. Fundamorphosis, how I left fundamentalism but didn't lose my faith. It's a, it's a book about that transformation of coming to grips with what I grew up with and and going through the crisis of leaving that behind and putting the pieces back together of a faith that makes sense for me in the world in which we live. Uh, and, you know, people might want to learn more about the book. They can do that at fundamorphosis.com um, and find out about the book. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, you know, basically, you know, anywhere you can get books, mm-hmm. you can get Fundamorphosis. We are not going to have a podcast next week no. because we are going on the road. That's right. We're, we're taking a book tour. The Fundam- Fundamorphosis Living Room Book Tour yeah. happens next week. We'll be making five stops in five days. We are, it's spring break for our kids, so we're going to load everybody into the car and we're going to drive across the country. And stop along the way and uh, talk about the book and, and share our stories with, with some folks. We will be in Pittsfield, Illinois on Monday the 18th. We will be in north of Chicago on um, Tuesday the 19th. We'll be in Grand Rapids, Michigan on Wednesday the 20th. We will be in Elkhart, Indiana on uh, Thursday the 21st. And Fort Wayne, Indiana on Friday the 22nd. So if you are in any of those areas and would like details about where we're going to be and what we're going to be doing, uh, let us know on facebook.com slash fundamorphosis or send us an email at fundamorphosis at gmail.com. We'll get you the info on the on the, the living room book tour. It'd be great to for, meet these people. Absolutely. It would be fantastic to meet you face-to-face. And I'm also right now this... Uh, the rest of this month, I am giving away a copy of Fundamorphosis on my blog. You can go to robryercy.com, and all you have to do to be entered to win a copy of Fundamorphosis is sign up to get my very infrequent newsletter. Um, <laughs> so infrequent that I don't even think I've sent one out yet. But you can, I mean, it's just not the kind of thing you're going to get spammed. But if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll be entered to win a copy of Fundamorphosis that we'll be giving away on April 1st. Yeah. So thanks everybody for listening. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Brian McLaren. We love talking to him. We love talking to you. Uh, Be in touch and, uh, and thanks so much.
Bye. Bye-bye.